Why am I being assaulted this way? Assaulted how? <laughs> Why are you on top of Bitch, it's hot. Take off your top. <laughs> Hi, welcome to Outrageous, a podcast where we talk about race, media, culture, politics, and everything in between. My name is Chris, I'm in New York City, and I'm joined by my very best friends, Trisha in LA. Hello. And Jason in DC. Hey. Hi, everyone. I have to tell you, summer snuck up on me because usually you're outside dealing with the weather, but I've just been inside, and then when I did go outside today, it was 90 degrees, so boom, summer's here. Um, and we were talking about this a little bit before, but the streets are thick with people. So I wonder what's going to happen next. COVID's over. It's over. We've We've solved COVID. We've disbanded the Minneapolis police and COVID is is solved. So let's move on into 2021 America. Yeah, it's, uh, it's crazy. And, uh, I had friends who were at the beach today because why not? Are they doing social distancing and wearing masks? What do you think? I don't know. I'm thinking, listen, if I go outside, I'm still social distancing. I mean, I think people are going in their little groups, right? You get six or seven people together. I have uh, decided that I'm going to start hanging out with people like two and and ones and twos in two weeks because I I can't take it anymore. But why two weeks? What's the the rationale there? (laughs) And why not just keep going four weeks? I just came back from a road trip. Uh, I was in upstate New York near Lake Ontario, just chillaxing, sitting by a lake. It was really quite nice, but I did come in contact with with other people. I mean, as it is here, I, I see like one or two people and that's it, but I was on the road and I went to a couple of gas stations. I went to, to get food. I interacted with people. And even though they have very few cases up there, I just figured I'll give it seven to 10 days to see how I feel before I start hanging out with others. So what's up with you two? I'm not doing any of those things. It sounds judgmental, but um, yeah, very wow. This is outrageous, and she is outraged by your irresponsible I'm behavior. I'm extremely outraged, but Why? I get it. Although, to be honest, I was just talking to one of my really good friends, and I was like, and and we're like, oh, should we get? Should we start seeing each other again? Should we like go out? Should we like go to a cafe? What are we thinking? So I was like, let me see what the um, let me see what the state is saying about what they're opening up and whether we should sit outside and grab a drink or something. I don't know. So, I mean, so obviously I'm making that judgment as well. I'm like, well, maybe one or two people, but outside only. Not to go out. Like you have that, you have like a pool area by your place, Trisha. You can invite someone over. You guys sit, have a drink, like share some food. And that would be lovely. Like one or two people. I know people have been doing that for quite some time. People have been socially distancing partying. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, having people over for drinks or um, picnics and then sitting outside at, at a spaced apart. But to be honest, the people in my building have been using that pool consistently throughout. So I'm not even certain that pool area is one that I would even want to. <laughs> <laughs> it's contaminated all no, over. It's... <laughs> I'm full on contaminated, so I basically would not even do that. <laughs> Unless they are down there just licking and spitting and expectorating, I think you'll be fine. <laughs> Can I tell you, there have been kids. So honestly, that's exactly what they're doing. Well, <laughs> is, is there chlorine there? Because I've been thinking about if we could inject chlorine into uh, our lungs. I no. think that could kill the virus. You know, you should be careful with the platform you have, Jason. Yeah, I mean, these kids are playing hide and seek. They're touching everything. They're screaming. You know, it's like. Okay, can we talk about kids for a second? Like, just be really honest. And that how lovely they are. Um, that's not where I was going. (laughs) Kids are gross on any given day, but especially now, like I actively go out of my way to avoid them. Did we talk about this on here? I actively try to avoid them. Like, especially parents who have their kids on their shoulders, those kids will just like lean and cough (laughs) on you (laughs) because they don't really have a sense of their bodies. Right. And the parent looks at you like, sorry. And I'm like, I'm going to die. (laughs) because you put like a a dispersal system on your shoulders like this this is my burden to bear now so when i whenever there's a lot of parents in my neighborhood whenever i see like a kid like trussed up like that in on daddy's saddle on the on his back i cross the street because i'm like "Mm -mm, no 
That I kid's like just, that it's like a germ vector. <laughs> <laughs> just shooting it in every direction. Well, it's, it's, I mean, if you think about it, you could make an interesting horror movie about kids right now because for the yeah. most part, they are asymptomatic carriers yep. of this and they can kill us all and mm-hmm. most of them will be fine. Jordan Peele, are you listening? <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about police reform versus abolition. So I don't know if anyone has noticed but the last 10 or 11 or 12 or 15 days, there have been massive protests all over the country and the world about Black Lives Matter, specifically about police brutality that uh, Black people suffer at the hands of police. So there has been a call to defund the police. And there has been a lot of confusion about what that means, weirdly, but it's there. DeRay McKesson, who we've talked about on here before, and a bunch of other people have been advocating for eight can't wait, which is like eight points that they want to see police forces adopt, which includes like banning of chokeholds, warning before shooting, et cetera, et cetera, which they say will reduce the number of police violent incidents by 72% or somewhere in the 70s. What sprung up um, on the other side of that is eight to abolition, which is um, the idea that there is no reforming the police departments and they have to be abolished because policing in and of itself is racist, it has racist roots. And the aid to abolition folks are calling for police to be defunded, for communities to be demilitarized, to remove police from schools, along with some other things. So I guess what I wanted to hear from you two is just to hear where you are on reform versus abolition. Defunding the police, is that too far for America's imagination? What do you think? I am inclined more towards the abolition defund end of the spectrum, let's say. I really have a hard time seeing how we can reform most police departments. I have a lot of respect for DeRay McKesson, and there seems to be some solid evidence behind the uh, eight can't wait in terms of reducing police violence. But at the end of the day, I just think there are such fundamental dynamics when it comes to policing there are such fundamental avoidances of accountability. We have a heavily armed people who we rely on to respond to all kinds of situations that so often escalate into violence by the police, often against people of color, sometimes even against white folks. So I'm much more sympathetic. I think the the defund and abolition to me feels like it has a better chance of success. The, the part that I struggle with, and you know, I've, I've read some of the articles out there. I don't claim to be very well read on the topic. What I don't have a solution for is, you know, the, unfortunately, the very same communities that are most subject to police violence, there's also, in many cases, a lot of violence that is not directly perpetrated by the police. There are a lot of guns um, in a lot of communities. And while I like what I hear around, you know, what defund the police and use the money to invest in communities in ways that help people participate in the economy, help people get educated, you know, basically prevent crime. And I, that speaks to me. I think in the long term, that makes sense. I struggle with in the short term, if tomorrow, let's say, we abolished police departments and reinvested the money, which again, I think I fundamentally support, I do wonder whether you have a period of time of, and it's hard because I'm not saying the police do a great job of re- of reducing the violence that's there, but I just wonder, given all the arms that are out there and all the uh, drug activity and that kind of thing, I just wonder what, what happens to safety in the short term. I think what I appreciate about um, abolition and abolition of police, abolition of prison, all of that language is is that it really shifts your consciousness in ways that reform doesn't. And that it opens up the space for you to imagine a different kind of world. To your point about sort of what immediately comes to the fore, first and foremost, I think that you you, you sort of can't talk about abol- abolishing things unless you confront guns, the presence of guns. Like, I think that this actually forces the gun control issue to the fore. Because it's not to say that I believe that communities will be lawless, because I actually don't actually I don't actually believe that would happen. Yeah. I think my 
biggest challenge with it is that for the people who I think are fairly reckless with guns, I think the I think the police are in some sense in a barrier to that. And I actually don't mean that for people of color. <laughs> given the climate and given what I what we've seen in the country right now and the sort of emergence of kind of white nationalism and the kind of hugging of guns, that question really requires, I think, removing guns from the United States before we can even enter into this space. I just, I don't, I, I feel like they go together. So I'm less hesitant around things around safety because as you sort of unpack the numbers and unpack sort of the research, it really turns out that cops don't do a lot of solving of too many violent crimes, unfortunately. Um, I think in some sense, the the notion of safety is probably a bit more of an illusion. And so for me, it's much more about non-police people with guns that worry me um, and what we do with that. So that's kind of like where I'm kind of where I land. As soon as I start reading abolitionist stuff, I'm excited by it. I'm excited by the possibilities. And then I say to myself, ooh, we're going to have to confront gun control. Uh, one of the many things we'd have to confront. I want to clear something up. I'd said something incorrect before. It can't wait. Um is part of a project from Campaign Zero, not Black Lives Matter. Yeah. And It Can't Wait, when it came out, a lot of people had responded to them saying that, uh, no, we don't need reforms. We need to completely overhaul it. And as I looked, uh, It Can't Wait, Campaign Zero has put out a announcement saying that they understand that they did not mean to shift the conversation and they support the movement to abolition, uh, which I think is really interesting. And I love how dynamic this moment is that they were able to switch that up in between the time for us planning for this podcast and right now. Well, they I had to because their numbers were wrong. That 72% and all the data was actually flawed. It, you know, And also the ideas that they were presenting are present in other departments. And they, yeah. they have yeah. reduced in LA, five of, the, five of the eight are in force. In New York, four of the eight are in force. And people are still dying left and right. I enjoy the idea of the of abolishing the police department. Why? It's a fantastic thought experiment and it's such a wonderful opportunity. When I've been talking to people about this this week, one of the first things they ask is like, what about violent crime? One of the things I'm always like, well, what was your last personal experience with violent crime? Some people had them for sure. But most of the people I talked to did not. And I was like, what was your last interaction with the police? Uh, this is why people I'm talking to. What was your last interaction with the police? Other than calling for noise complaints, no, a bunch of the people I spoke to did not have an interaction with the police, a meaningful interaction as an adult. So I was like, tell me again why you personally would need the police. It was really, and watching people's wheels turn there. And I was like, you know, there's, you don't need police if you call for the, for if there's a fire. You don't need police if you call because someone's fall down needs an ambulance. There's a lot of things that we sort of shoehorn police into, which automatically escalates and does not de-escalate the situation because now someone has a gun in the room. Do you remember a couple of years ago, there was a, a student in a school. I want to say it was a middle school. It might be a high school. It was a black girl. And she was, whatever, being recalcitrant in, tra in class. So they called the school officer who came in and slammed her into the desk and slammed I her remember. to the ground. I remember. It was horrific. It was violent. It was incredible that cops are just wandering the halls of our school buildings. Why do we need cops in our schools? There's very few places that we actually need police. Do we need a small group of public servants who can react to like violent crimes and terrorist threats and stuff? Yeah, we already have that and they don't really interact with us. Generally, yeah. they're doing their own thing in the background, protecting us from threats, protecting us from a nuclear device in Times Square on New Year's Eve. That is a real story. Try to Google it, see if you can find it. But they're doing all that stuff in the background, and that does not have any interaction with the public. And that could be what police is. You know, they don't need to be stopping us on the street and all that nonsense. I think it'd be, it'd be fascinating. It'd be really fascinating to see a world where you get social workers, mental health professionals, firemen, all this sort of thing. And also, like you said, Trisha, it'd be, we'd have to rethink guns and we'd have to rethink prisons, which I'm here all day for. 
I think the thing that's also noteworthy about this is that for us, and I'm going to admit this, abolish police, these are not new ideas. They may be new on the floor of mainstream media and maybe even some of us, but this is a deeply studied idea and notion. And mostly led by black feminist scholars, by the way. So this is not something that is a flash in the pan or some wonky idea, which is how it's being sold. It's like, that's a wacky and crazy idea. But once you start to unpack it, what it really does is asks you questions about the assumptions you make. What are the assumptions you make about what is called a crime? What, do you, what are the assumptions you make about what punishment is and what, what, what purposes it serve? Those are, I mean, I think we've had, we had com- podcasts in the past when we talked about, we were examining sort of like how we hadn't moved forward in terms of our thinking around mental health and all kinds of things. And I was just like, why haven't we done that? And I think part and parcel of that is just a lack of resources, lack of resources in thinking through how we create a society that um, leads to less harm for people. Because I think the, the, I think the police model is like a convenient holding space. Everything goes there. Yeah. So it doesn't really allow us to unpack all the other things that are going on in society. You know, why, is, why are cops in school? Makes no sense. Like, it, do, it really doesn't, ultimately. And, you know, that's one of the steps that I think I approve of. Is like, let's remove cops from the school. But I remember, what was it, in the 90s and the 80s, maybe, those stories about people shooting up schools. You could probably rationalize the presence of cops because of kind of the sort of mainstream narrative around that. And I don't even know whether those numbers are real or not. I don't, or whether they were enough to merit wholesale adapting that process. So I think the last thing you said is is really significant. I, I do want to say that what, you know there was this shooting a couple of years ago in Santa Fe, Texas, outside Houston. Mm-hmm. I visited that school just a couple of weeks after the shooting, and that was a school with school police in it, and the school police had shot the shooter. And in that case, and I'm not saying this to dispute what you're saying, I'm going to make a broader point. In that case, though, you know, being there, hearing all the stories, talking with the superintendent and the school police and that kind of thing, there's no question that at that acute moment, if there had not been an armed police officer to stop the shooter, a lot more kids and staff would have been killed. I think there's no question about it. I think what we have a very hard time doing in this country, especially white people, frankly, is really making tough decisions around trade-offs. Gun control is a perfect example. It's even step away from this from schools for a second. You know, you hear this argument, especially from Republicans, about, you know, we have to let people have, you know, semi-automatic guns because what about the single mother in her home and mm-hmm. an intruder comes? If you look at the numbers, she needs a no semi-automatic for <laughs> well, sure. right? Yeah, yeah. Well, but and, and but the ra- reality is that it gets to points both of you have made. If we do the math, like, can that possibly happen? Yes. Does it ever happen? It, it very well might. But we have to make tough decisions. And in this case, the number of people who get killed, by the way, including people who kill themselves because of the prevalence of guns far outweighs the number of single mothers who suffer intruders. And it's, you know, you have folks like the NRA that you're able to make an emotional argument on a certain side of the issue, but it is based on the emotion. It's not based on the facts. And so I'm saying I visited that school. It was horrific. The bloodstains were still there. And again, in that case, because there was an armed police officer, more people didn't get killed. That said, though, I think the, the fact that that child had such access to guns, like there are there are many things that allowed that to happen before it got to the point of a kid shooting up the school. And if we could, and this gets to what you're both saying about like being able to step back and think through all of the complexities of all this and not just focus on what well, we need a cop with a gun to solve problems. If we were thinking ahead and setting up our society in a way that did not make it as easy or as possible for that child to go to school that day to shoot up the school, we would be better served than having police officers in every school and all of the problems that that brings. Okay. So if I look at everything you just said, um, I agree with you, you know, but let's look at what you said. Like this person, it's a child went and shot up a school. Yes. And if, if not for this police officer, 
he might have killed more people. So when we talk about defunding, right, where does all the money, the billions of dollars that went to the police go? Could there be, I'm not saying, I don't know the situation well enough, but is it possible that there could have been a, some sort of safety net? Could it be possible that there was some sort of mental health service that was available? Someone who, maybe not an ACS sort of invasive sort of way, but just kept tabs on the mental health of students and that could be flagged for some sort of intervention. Is that a possibility? Could that have prevented it? You know, I think a lot about Columbine, those two teenagers, the signs were there. The community right. knew that these, those two had issues. They rhapsodized about guns and weapons and they went on about it and sort of everyone shrugged until they shot up the school. Is it possible that if there was money and if there was access and if there was personnel that we could have prevented that, not through another good guy with a gun, but with forethought. Um, the other thing I would just wanna say, and just so we're careful about this, like, and gun companies do this all the time, that fear has a gender. And so we presume that weapons are necessary for single mothers to protect themselves right. because men have something in them where they could fend off an intruder naturally <laughs> somehow with their manness and it's just one of these ways that the gun companies prey upon our fears like oh well yes. someone think of the poor defenseless women with their boobs what are they supposed to do you know it, it's not fall into those traps yeah it's interesting i've been watching kind of the language about abolish the police defund the police or um reform the police and in a kind of the pundit class right the people who are quote unquote learned they are the ones you go to to get um, the pulse of people. They're like, you know, that's just the wrong label. Defund the police, abolish the police. That's not what people, that's not what they mean. You know, they don't really mean that. What they really mean is A, B, C, D, E, F, a version of reform. But, you know, I was doing a bit of like reform research and reform becomes really, really tricky. It turns on itself because um, I was reading up, up and they were talking about how solitary confinement was initially a reform move because it was this notion that you should spend some time in contemplation alone, right? Thinking of the harm you've done, but within a sort of violent structure like a prison, how does that turn in? You know what I mean? It, it, it turns into something that you didn't anticipate. And so I think the question of reform versus abolition is really kind of like a much more grounded question about what is the purpose of this institution? If you fundamentally believe that the police is actually what they advertise, which is safety, then reform seems like protect, you know, like protect and serve. Then reform is logical to you. Right. And I, th I dare say for white folks, that feels really comfortable. Like, oh, we just do, we just need new, new rules, better rules, da, 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 all of that stuff. Right. But if you understand that even just in the founding of police, which was in some sense about control controlling the population, controlling, controlling rowdy people, controlling act, people's access to your property, which essentially was really what that was, then by its very nature, it's not reformable, right? It, it's like it has these structures within it, which is why when someone enters the force with all kind of good thoughts in them, something about that structure changes them, right? It fundamentally shifts what they do. So you can sit around and say to yourself, well, I went in with this intention, but somehow this structure has shifted me to the point where I'm doing things I would never have thought I would do. So I think that anyone who wants to kind of like land on the reform place doesn't want to do that really difficult work, I think, of actually... I mean, picking at a scab to some degree, like really, really unpacking that institution. It'd be also, like saying reforming like racism. Like, how do you, what's the reform for that? Like, well, people of color could tell you, like black indigenous people of color could tell you. The thing about the defunding the police calls, as always, white people have poor imagination because the world is built for them. I think for white populations, defunding the police feels like a threat because that's mm -hmm. what the police is here to do. Mm -hmm. It's to keep brown and black people in their area and away from us, you know, from the white person's perspective. And I think that is the real challenge here. And honestly, I am surprised by how quickly this conversation has become a national conversation, given that, given the weakness of white imagination to imagine a world beyond police. Well, I think the bullets, I think the, um, I think the bullets and tear gas 
made it inevitable because they were the targets this time as they peacefully protested. So I think what's happening is I think your audience is beginning to ask the question about what if the, what if they turn on me? What if the thing that I've created to protect me actually imprisons me? And I think that's where now there's an entree. And I have to say, um, there's a wonderful woman that I follow on Twitter. And she says, you know, you actually have spaces where the police in, in all intents in all effect are abolished already. And when I think it's funny because I watch crime shows and obviously, and so sometimes you'll go in these small town when an egregious crime has happened, right? And they're like, oh my God, everyone's shocked. Because in that town, all the things we tag as crime isn't called a crime. A little petty theft here, a little da da da. These are small towns where people know each other. They have webs of relationship. Someone gets drunk. You're putting that person aside and be like, okay, I'll put you in the jail for the night. Um, you know, these are not perceived of as like crimes in the way that they're perceived when you go in an urban setting. And they're also not treated as like endemic to the person's character. It's very situational. Right. And so the person's really allowed to make a mistake and there's a dialogue with the community about it. And so when she raised that, I was like, you know, that's true. I observe that often. There are assumptions that are just being made in certain communities about who's doing harm, what the harm is. What what usually shocks them is like a violent crime that is rare. Like it comes out of nowhere, which also speaks to the possibility that there is such a thing as rare as the rarity of a certain type of crime. Mm -hmm. But our perception within the city or any of those is that that's the crime that happens often. And that's why we need cops. And I think if you look at most communities and most neighborhoods, that's not their experience. It's not their experience of like um, the kinds of things that are happening. And you're right. The number of things that cops are actually doing is actually sort of just control things. Tickets. I mean, like, so patrolling the streets. And, you know, so it's just, I think it's, that's why I said it was like, it's an actually unpacking of our imagination. I also have to remove the police inside of me, the internalized police be built around fears that I've developed over time. The real work is for white people. Because I, I understand what you're saying about the internal concept of the police, but my internal concept of the police is so different than your rank and file white person who lives in the city. Just because well, I, I don't know. I, I, I do. I mean, I, I can sense it just because like, I don't trust the police. Like when I'm in enclosed spaces with the police, like in the subway, like I leave the car because mm -hmm. I, I can't risk that you they know, may yeah. look up and think that I'm a bad guy while, you know, the white people I'm sure are always just comforted by the fact that the police are there because those are the codes. That's why police are there to protect white people and their property. So, although there's some decolonization of police that you have to do in your own mind, I think it's really going to be white populations who have to really dig really deep and really engage their imagination about what life would look like without that. You know, what would Amy Cooper do if she didn't have someone to call to assassinate a black man? Like, how would she, how could she have handled that? I think that's going to be, and like, like Jason alluded to, I'm sure not on purpose, but like this concept that we think about women at home alone need weapons or protection. That's going to be the hardest thing to get yeah. over. You know, that's going to be the hardest sell for white populations. Well, what about our women? You know, meanwhile, women are women and can fucking do anything, but don't tell a white woman that because she's the last one to know. <laughs> that's what white men have given to them. Well, let me say, because of just the structure of our country for better or for worse, I think it's for worse, you know, it's unlikely that there will be wholesale, large-scale abolition all at once. I think what's probably more likely, I don't even know how likely it is, frankly, but if it ever seemed possible, it seems like now it is, is whether a city like Minneapolis or even communities within a city like Minneapolis will decide that they want to make this change and wrestle with all the things that means and and see how it goes. And I'm just very curious to see. I mean, the Minneapolis, I think the city council is talking about defunding the police and that kind of thing. But I don't, to me, it remains to be seen whether is that really just, you know, reducing funding in a reform effort or is that something closer to abolition? I think it will be interesting to see communities and cities that actually try this. Well, just to note, there are experiments 
around that too. I mean, I think if you go back to the folks who do the who have done the reading and done the work on this, um, I think it, there there are places like in Chicago where people are trying different models to 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 demonstrate how you diffuse situations. So how do you diffuse gang violence? without police um, intervention. And to be honest, you know, ever since we started to sort of sort of popularize images of cops killing black people, which we always knew, but now we're seeing it on camera. I mean, internally within our family, we've had conversations about whether we're calling the cops. I mean, and actually with over the last several years, there are things where I would never call the cop, but there might've been a thought in my mind, oh, I'm gonna call the police. That never occurs to me now. That, that's just something that has happened over time. And so I can imagine that if we, I think people's imagination will begin to expand if they can consider and can see ways of diffusing non-threatening situations, mental health situations, homeless folks, like homeless people, I see them going crazy on the street, doing different kinds of things. I never think to call the cops because I'm like, you know what? That's just a scenario where it's only gonna escalate because this person is mentally ill. And so it just doesn't occur to me that that's a resolution. I know that we've been trying to do things with like 311. So there are some vestiges of these systems there. I think we just need to sort of have an imagination about how to prop those things up more yeah. so that it becomes clearer where, um, where a potential cop could even intervene. And to follow up on our last episode, it's going to be hard, but our storytellers have to begin to weave different stories because again, like when I did my informal poll of people I know, it was like, what is your connection to violent crime? And, you know, to a man, everyone was like, none, but you turn on the TV, you would think that's what cops are doing all the time. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but I've known cops. I knew, I know cops who have been on the force for like eight years and never discharged their weapon. Sure. They've never had to. That's not what they do. You know, right. they walk up and down, they go to department stores, they're hanging out in Kmart for some reason. They're in lobbies of hospitals for some weird reason. Like they're everywhere. Like they're very, very few officers are running after vehicles filled with like gangsters or teenage gang members. Very, yeah. very few. Well, I think it's also for them. I mean, for them, I think their imagination about their role might need to shift as well. And maybe maybe like like us, they've bought into a certain idea of who they are. Which, by the way, to your point, the show Cops has been canceled. Oh, good. The longest running show. One of I was going to say, it took long enough. It took Honest to God, I didn't know Cops was still on. Show. I didn't know it was still I, on. Listen, you, you know it was in its heyday maybe in like the 90s it the is 90s. a horrific show sure you watch it's just people at their lowest everyone at their lowest no yeah. one no it's, one looks good in that show it's, it's poverty porn it's poverty porn i was just gonna porn. say because it's it's not just black people That's like right. they roll up on on poor white people yeah. and just humiliate and embarrass yep. them and punish them for being poor and lacking resources and access right. And it's disgusting. And you're right. It's I honestly didn't know shit that show was still in the air. I was disgusted of it in the 90s. Well, I don't know. I'm gonna, I give a perfect example. I don't know if you all saw the video. Did you see the video that said, you are about to lose your job? Did you see that? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, actually, you know what? There was a, a black woman who was being arrested by a very handsome police officer. He was. He was very And she was, was doing this little, she was doing a little jig while she was handcuffed. You were about to lose your job. And he was trying not to laugh. Yeah. Well, it turns out, so then they made it a remix and it became a little bit of the song of the protest. Um, but it turns out, though, that the video went viral, obviously, and her family found her and she had been struggling with drug addiction. And oh, she's wow. now back with her family and there's a GoFundMe for her. So again, talk about sort of, again, making the case that this is an interaction that didn't re necessarily require a police, right? Because it was something else, right? It was drug addiction. <laughs> just, and just so, so absurd that we have criminalized drug addiction. It's just crazy. the list. We've criminalized sex work. We've I know. criminalized truancy. We've crim I mean, the list All goes on and on. We are going to move on to our next topic, but I want to do a really quick topic. I want to do a celebrity check-in. Celebrity check in on me? Is that what you're doing? <laughs> yeah, because you're the celebrity of the three of us. <laughs> Please. 
great eye roll. Just listen, <laughs> just so you know, it was a really good eye roll. Celebrities this week have lost their damn minds. People don't know what to say. You know, people refuse to hire publicists. They're just tweeting at four in the morning. Like, they're like, I, you know, it doesn't matter that I have a billion dollars. Let me just piss it all away right now. I, this is just a general question. And I would love if, if we could get someone to talk to about, like, how does this messaging break down for people, uh, for celebrities and famous people? And specifically, I'm talking about there was some unfortunate tweeting going on by Terry Crews, J.K. Rowling, uh, Leah Michelle. Several people who just, you know, the, the, the best thing you can do in this moment is say nothing because no one asked you. <laughs> well, I mean, you know what? It's tricky, right? It's, it's, it's tricky, right? Because they're part of a machine and the machinery is off, right? But like all of us, they're experiencing life authentically, right? They are isolated in their homes. And their publicists are also working remotely somewhere or probably not staffing them right now. So what you're getting is the unfiltered person. This is, that's all it is. It's nothing unique or, or special this about is, it. But what, what's interesting to me about that, and maybe it's just me because I can get real transactional when it comes to work and money. I can get super transactional. If I'm JK Rowling and I'm sitting in a castle on top of a billion dollars, <laughs> And I see some article that makes me feel a certain way. I'd look at my phone. I'd look down at my billion dollars and I go, huh, is it worth it? No, no. It's not <laughs> and like I would that. say, and you, I would you, say, no, it's not, not worth like, it. She's not going to lose her billion dollars. I don't know what you're talking about. I well, know. And also you're trend, you, you are definitely purely transactional. You know, I am. You know why? Because she's not, it's, that's not the comparison she's thinking. She's like, the, the question you should ask yourself is, do I have a friend I can share this with, or will I just make Twitter my friend? So That's is this the thing? Do, do Terry Crews and J.K. Rowling these people just don't have friends? Is that what's you know what? discovering? They're not. There's nothing special or unique about Terry or any of these people. Because if you watch and read Twitter, people say ridiculous things often, and you say to yourself, "DM your friend that. Get and yeah, watch that group just that." Sh sh yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so many people. The the young black man who voiced Spider Man, the Spider Man into the Spider Verse, Shamik Moore. Shamik Moore. That's it. He came out and said some nonsense. The head of CrossFit decided this was his moment that he was going to crack wise about a man being killed. Wow! And he lost millions of dollars in a couple of hours because Reebok was like, "Fuck you, bye bye." I, I don't know. Maybe I am so transactional. I, I'm not the right person to think about this, but I understand what you're saying. I, I just don't know how you don't. Maybe like money's not at risk. Yeah. Or you. But have your money career and reputation about losing it. But your career and reputation and what you built the money is. And I honestly, I would care more about my career and reputation than the money. You can always make more money, but you can't crawl back into the public's arms after you have really shit the bed. You know what you're you know what the thing that's interesting I think also you you may want to think about the dynamics of that which is that many of the gatekeepers do a lot of heavy lifting sometimes without the people knowing that they're being gatekeep or that they have access to a gatekeeping right so let's let's pick our favorite favorite politician Joe Biden um, I didn't know who you were going to say I, I was like <laughs> Our Jason, who did you think she was going to say? I didn't know. I was like, who's our favorite politician? She thought it was, you thought it was going to be Sanders. Uh, you know what's but shocking? When you said that, I went blank. I was like, oh my God. I, don't <laughs> I didn't think we liked any of those motherfuckers. <laughs> well, you know what? I just learned something about myself. It's not Elizabeth Warren. It's nobody. But anyway, go ahead, Trisha. <laughs> so the funny thing about it is everyone says of Joe Biden, just let's just make sure he says nothing until the election, right? The thing about that tells you that they have not communicated that to him. He thinks he is still authentically doing whatever. But what you realize encountering Joe Biden out in the raw is that the Obama administration did a fantastic job Full of stop. keeping him, keeping him away from you so you weren't aware of a lot of these things. Do you know what I mean? It's, so it's, it's making then, someone a VP is a great way to silence them because VPs yeah. have no platform. Generally, right? These people are authentically themselves all the time. It's just that they have so many people around them that create barriers and boundaries 
that it's rare it's rare that that you get a sense of who they are this is who this person has always been crossfit guy isn't suddenly new no of course not saying these things behind the scenes and people are like finally i wasn't there to take a phone away from him so here you go (laughs) i I mean you're you're seeing a breakdown of image making (laughs) i i think it's fascinating because it's it's so hard for people to build an image and build a career and it's just Dev, it's just destroyed because you thought you were being funny while being racist. Let's move on to our second topic. So Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton wrote an op-ed in the New York Times calling for, among other things, fire and hell and brimstone to be brought down on the heads and shoulders of law-abiding Americans. It sounds like I'm being really extra and dramatic, but if you've read it, you know I'm not too far off from the truth. Tom Cotton, his idea for quelling these riots, saying that we should send in the military. That was the name of the piece, send send in the troops. And the New York Times published this on their opinion page to much consternation on their staff between their opinions and news departments. There was a lot of talk. There was a lot of more articles by the New York Times saying, why we published Tom Cotton's article. And eventually the editor of the opinion department had to resign. Why is this such a big deal? Why is this captured the journalism news in the past week, do you think? Well, I will say two things. One, I think... You can say more. It's fine. It's your show. (laughs) I'll start with two things. One is the piece, I think, really ran the risk of inciting a great deal of violence. It had lots of inaccuracies and mischaracterizations, and it Again, it ran the risk of inciting violence, and we've seen a lot of violence coming from law enforcement and authorities in these times. I think arguably, arguably more violence coming from you know, law enforcement and the authorities than actual protesters. And here we have someone you know, calling for greater shows of force that could lead to lots of, frankly, you know, law-abiding Americans um, getting killed, getting injured, as we've been seeing all over the place. So I think that's one is just a very dangerous thing to print. I think the other, you know, maybe more nuanced conversation that you see a lot is, is around the whole that. So there's this, we, we know that the media has really, we'll say struggled to be generous or done a very poor job overall for not being as generous in covering Trump and figuring out how to cover a president who lies all the time. You know, do you, as we know, they, they feel they need to, the president says something, you got to report it, but it's not true. But now because it wasn't true, now people hear it. Now they think it's true. It's been really problematic. And it seems like this is the latest and, and a really, um, a really inflammatory episode of that where you have, you know, the editor that you mentioned, Chris, I think making the argument, well, editorials, we try to have a diversity of opinion, et cetera. And then other people saying, well, this goes too far, you know, this violates some of your own standards. And I think it is this real challenge that the media has struggled with. Uh, We have really awful, racist, violent, dictatorial ideas that are becoming very mainstream under this president and under the current Republican Party and others. And, you know, I think they struggle with what what do you do about that? And this clash between, well, let's not sideline certain ideas versus some ideas are really dangerous. So, you know, lies are should not be printed on the page of a reputable newspaper, et cetera. I wonder about that. I wonder about how incapable people really are, because one of the things I've been enjoying about this moment is when someone says, let's go to an alternate universe to see how newspapers would cover the United States if it was a foreign country. So we have the capacity to cover the United States using the same barometers that they've been using all along. We just actively choose not to do so. I mean, because that tells me that you don't have to adopt new journalistic standards. The people who cover the international um, news are the same journalists who cover local news. But somehow or another, they can't sort of step outside of themselves and look at the United States as if it was a country that they didn't belong to. Is it their own internal bias that's getting in the way? Because I think um, Karen Atia at the Washington Post, she covered Trump's Bible moment as if it was a foreign country. Don't quote me on that. But she did some event as if it was a foreign country. It really unpacked what was happening in the United States so clearly. 
the New York Times and there are other mainstream outlets that suffer from this, I think. It, I think for a long time, it's had this complex around not wanting to look like a, you know, liberal biased publication. And so you've seen them hire op-ed writers and print editorials that seem to be like they just want to show that they're not biased to the Democrats or to liberals. And it's frustrating to me because I feel like on the news side of your publication, if you're printing facts and you're doing your research and you're acknowledging when you get things wrong, it should be a non-issue. And what's in your editorial pages, I just think you should not go out of your way to print dangerous ideas in the, you know, to pursue some fantasy of looking objective. Trump and other Republicans have every incentive to paint the Times as, you know, liberal bias. There's stuff in the Times I don't like, so I don't want to say that I think the Times is, you know, always fantastic. Where you fight that battle is not on the editorial side. You fight it on the, on the, news, the news side. side. And so to me, it's very misguided to say, well, we're going to fight that by printing these outlandish things from the right. I think it's very misguided. It's, they've been bullied. I think a lot of mainstream media has been bullied by the right since the Clinton days. The conservatives and the Republicans have been like, you're unfair to us. You don't respect you know, conservative ideas. Wah, 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 wah. And it worked. It worked to this point now where people are nervously, you know, dry hand washing, being like, well, we don't want to turn off half the country to our paper. You know, we want people to think that we're fair and balanced. And it gets into like this two-sidedism idea where it's like, hmm, cannibalism. Here's an article that here's an op-ed that says that we should do it. <laughs> Chris's you know, favorite topic. No, it's and I pick I pick cannibalism. Yeah. I pick cannibalism because like it's so outlandish. It's so outlandish. And it would be so outlandish that the New York Times would allow an op-ed <laughs> about, you know, the pros and how they outweigh the cons of eating your neighbors. However, Tom Cotton was able to write this. First of all, his opinion aside, factual errors. He was able yes. in an opinion piece to just rewrite recent history. Yep. about who was out there, the fact that they were all looters, the fact that Antifa was behind it. Like, none of that is true. Talk about not being up to standards, which is what the New York Times, like, grumbling said, but the, it's still available on their site, which is wild. They're just the recipients and the victims of bullying. And I'm not certain why they don't stand up to it and be like, actually, you don't get to just lie. And... Not everything is a conversation because this is America and there are some baseline values. There's baseline things that we hold dear and you just can't advocate for anything that goes against that. I'm sorry. And if that makes the New York Times the bad guy, they need to have the courage of their convictions. Yes. Because this is, where we, this is where we ended up with. I'll be honest. I think that there is a part of this where it's about how far people are from the things they're actually covering and how little access they have to people who are directly impacted by the things that they are, um, that makes the news. When, you know, at the start of 2016 or when, or at the end, when Trump won, there was this sense, and it was so clear immediately by like news folks of color, where they're like, uh-oh, we're going to, if we were last hired, we're going to be the first fired because they knew that there was going to be this notion that we had to give that side space in prominent newspapers. So how many pieces did we see about a diner, a, a, a voter from a diner in no Timbuktu somewhere who was thinking about Trump or any of that kind of stuff? Or like, let's do a whole thing on Nazis, you know, you, the Nazi next door or the, all of these kinds of things. And I just... To some degree, I feel like, and I don't know if maybe I'm maybe I have a kind of nostalgia for this notion of kind of community newspapers or community journalism, but I think that there's too much of a distance and a kind of artificial distance that's or intellectual distance that's been created in certain spaces where this isn't really a this isn't this doesn't have any real impact on people's lives so we can just kind of play with ideas and frankly i think that people on the right have exploited that 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 sort of like desire for you to feel like any idea is up for grabs to be discussed because you're not even thinking about 
the natural extension of an idea, right? It's like uh, Nazism is just an idea. Well, what happens next? Because I know that usually their camps use their ovens, like. Oh, but you know what I mean, like. Jeez. But that's true, right? But we never go there. We always talk about it as if it's just simply ideas. But there are actions that come out of it, and I actually think that they thought of Tom Cotton's piece similarly. It's just a set of ideas, but I'm like, it's not a set of ideas. They're actually like, they're requests that could end up with Americans dead. But that didn't seem to rise to the top of like the consideration. So I don't know. I don't know what what pieces are cut off or whether it's this elusive run um, to to try to be objective. I don't know. But I've never believed in the objectivity thing with with news. News is never objective. That. I just There's never always, you're why. always speaking from a perspective, always. So there, there can be no objective news, or I mean, or to you know to paraphrase. Neil Postman, the only thing that is really news is the weather. That's the only thing you could be objective about. <laughs> it's this temperature. It's either raining or it's not. It will end soon or not soon, and that's the end of that. There's no, there's no other details. There's no warp or weft to that. No. Other than that, that's it. So I agree with that, but I do think that any reputable news outlet should have standards, and they should have standards on both sides of the house. They should have standards for their news and you know, what kind of research, what kind of evidence needs to be referenced or can be referenced to show that what's being reported is is true or defensible. And on the editorial side, there should be standards about, you know, what are ideas that are worth printing that aren't dangerous to the public and aren't full of mis misleading information, inaccuracies, lies. Clearly, this editorial should not have met the New York Times standards. I, the, the other thing I don't understand is, uh, you know, everything I, I said at the beginning, how they seem to have this thing, this chip on their shoulder about they want to look objective. At the same time, what did they, do they think that if they show, if they print an editorial like Tom Cotton's the next week, all the Fox viewers were going to subscribe to the New York Times? Like, I don't know what their goal is in printing that. Like, their, their key audience isn't going to be sympathetic to it. The people who don't like the New York Times weren't going to suddenly like the New York Times. I don't well, get I, what they're after. I think, I think they, I think, I don't know if it's a guiding principle, but one of their principles is to challenge their readership. Yeah. So they know that it's all liberals like us who read the New York <laughs> Times. And so they're thinking, oh, okay, well, this will shake it up so they're not just they'll talk back with us. Like this will get the conversation going with our base. And also what I said earlier, that they're the victims of bullying that I really think that they think that they are doing something good by like allowing an open marketplace of ideas, which like Trisha said, I don't, I don't, I never really bought that an it's open marketplace of ideas. Yeah. It's, it's not it, really there. And also, I mean, I think that the, to the point of like, what are American values? And what's, um, I mean, are you printing things that are opposite of what's in the Constitution? That what, what reasonable people think of or agree to in terms of what um, our values are in the United States? I don't, That's a I don't weird... feel as strongly about that, though. I mean, you have to have a news outlet that, I mean, look, I think we should be talking about a new Constitution. So Sure. So I don't, to me, that's less important than, again, like dangers to public health and public safety and... Um, but they didn't yeah. think those things are dangerous to public health and safety. That's not how they're defining it, right? They're defining ideas and the notion of like exploration as uh, as inherently valuable. They're not putting it down on a kind of like um, on these hard and fast sort of concrete ideas. What they're aiming for is a kind of more untenable thing, right? It's it's not something that you can touch. I don't think that I don't think you would get them proclaiming something that was wrong in terms of public health. But this is much more about who we are as Americans and what our values are, which is why I think it's a little bit harder and stickier for them, because they still have this notion of an open debate. That's the piece. What would they say no to? There's a Vox article where they were like, if someone just written a article about, you know, the virtues of chattel slavery, that they would never print that. I'm not I'm not certain they wouldn't. Well, the thing is, what this what this event has shown me that I'm no longer certain either. Which <laughs> like, is, I think it's a be. weird place to be. It's a really weird place to be. And so that's why I raised the issue of the Constitution, right? I mean, that's the only document I have about what we believe theoretically as a country, right? It's like we, we have outlawed slavery except for. Um, so, so then why raise that as, um, as something to be, um, to be explored? 
I, I just, I mean, it's, it's a tricky space. I mean, I think, you know, part of it is that, you know, I, I think it's probably, they're all from the same space. They're from the same class. Maybe they're all educated in the same environment. Maybe. So these are all ideas to folks. But mm, I don't know. Listen, I mean, in wrapping this up, I think the journalistic world is going to have to have a come to Jesus after this Trump moment is over. There's... After <laughs> they may listen, they're 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 swiftly sending them their own self out of business. Yeah, I was going to say they might not be around day. for a come to Jesus moment. After. I mean, maybe not as as it is now, but like we need journalists, we need media, whatever that's going to look like, and there's going to have to be some agreements made about what happens after this moment. The past five years, they have fumbled so poorly and helped to create this environment that we all live in now, where you know, Americans are far too comfortable with the idea with the idea of an autocrat, of a dictator in the United States of America. It's been, I, I don't like to say a slippery slope, but we really have slid so far to the right that the Republican Party is not akin to any other political party in any other democracy in the world. It's so far right. And that's problematic that we got there in such a short amount of time. Not that like with Black Lives Matter, not that they didn't, they have, they've been putting the work in since the late nineties, Yes, but the last five <laughs> years has been an acceleration of shocking speed and scope. Uh, let's talk about recommendations, which is something that you've seen, heard, read, or experienced that you think other people should see, hear, read, or experience. Trisha, I'm going to start with you. And I swear to God, if this is a trashy romance, <laughs> giant green penises, no one wants to hear that shit, Trisha. I don't know why you're critiquing me. <laughs> you know why. Reading again. She's finally reading again, and you're discouraging her. I, I know. I'm actually you know, I listened to an old episode where Trisha was so emphatically, oh, I'm trying to read again. I've gotten auto. Like, I'm, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. Cut to this moment. So I'm reading Trashy Romance. <laughs> that wasn't the goal here, honey. That's not it's where we were headed. Back. <laughs> anyway, what's your media recommendation? Um, my media recommendation is okay. So for me, I've actually just been um, I'm for it just in preparation for this. I'm reading the website A World Without Police. I'm actually going to take my way through all of the recommended readings. I really enjoy it. I'm I, I really enjoy them unpacking kind of the founding of police the nature of abolition, all of it. Um, so I would recommend taking a deep dive in that website. It's a study guide. I would love to be reading it with other people so that we can talk about the things that we're encountering. So um, I'm enjoying that. So a aworldwithoutpolice.org is what I would recommend as um, a media recommendation. Very cool. Jason? I'm going to recommend a show on Netflix called Brainchild. It's directed at kids. I watch it with my kids, but it is, it's, a, it's a science show. It's presented in a very funny way. Lots of great information. I learn a ton. I laugh a lot. My kids learn a ton. They laugh a lot. It's great. Oh, that's cute. Awesome. Good stuff. I... I'm in the midst of reading and watching things. I'm, I'm sensitive about recommending them because that usually turns on me. Yep. Um, <laughs> yep. You know how it goes. So uh, I'm going to recommend the first eight episodes of Community of season one because that's all I'm up to. So community... <laughs> I know there's like five or six seasons. I can't attest for any of that, people. But um, in this moment in time, community, it's so dumb. Wait, this so is like the silly. Chevy Chase? Yep. It was a show on NBC, a Dan Harmon show on NBC starring Joel, Joel McHale. McHale. Yeah. Um, I don't know his real name. Childish Cambino. What's his real name? Donald Glover. Donald Glover, Chevy Chase. And the show is really silly. It's about these people going to community college. But the show is so much closer to like the Simpsons or something cartoonish than like actual like live action. Like basically it's a high school drama, but with adults because they're in community college, right? <laughs> so as long as you accept that, it's really quite funny. The first eight episodes. The other thing <laughs> is that Chevy Chase is um, 
I mean, this is well known that he's tyrannical and that actually he walked off the set in some later season and just quit and said it's the worst thing he's ever done in his career. (laughs) The best thing is to watch in the scenes that he has with the other actors. It's so clearly not the other actors. It's all stand-ins. And they just shoot it from an angle, so you could only ever see Chevy Chase. <laughs> really? <laughs> yes. In every episode, like, it, it, like the amount of time he's actually with the cast is so limited. So, I mean, once you see it, you can't unsee it. Anyways, watch watch the first eight episodes of Community. That's all I can attest to. So enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to become like the first five minutes of this movie. That's all I can remember. <laughs> the first five minutes are really good. It's all downhill after that. Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> I'm, I'm reading. I'm reading two books, and it's like I've I've been burned before. So you won't hear about them until I I'm reading. Pages well, one to the ten. Idea, in this book. The whole idea is just to experience it. It's not about whether. <laughs> I mean, I want to recommend good stuff. You know, I, I do want to recommend good stuff that I've, ex- I've enjoyed, but well, one, I have to say though, I'm getting sick and tired of TV. I'm just going to say it. I'm I'm almost filled to the brim of TV stuff, which is great because I guess summer is here and I can go outside. Oh wait, no, I can't. <laughs> this is nope. the calculus people are making. Do I watch more TV or do I kill myself? I have to think about it. And I'm the dramatic one? What was that? (laughs) Alright, do I endanger my health and safety? (laughs) Or do I watch another episode of Community? That's what I'm struggling with. And on that note, bye everybody. Bye. Bye.